1: Welcome to Hazel Story, an epic saga podcast. We're here to dive into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staple's comic book masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness in this grand space opera. My name's Abu. And I'm Alan. And Alan, we're back for episode two. We did it. We managed to not
0: become one of the literal millions of podcasts with only one episode. We have now made it to episode two. Yes. I, I think we should be proud of ourselves. And I can't wait to jump right in, continuing our reread of Saga, taking on chapters four, five, and six, which
1: complete volume one, also known as the first story arc of Saga. That's right. And before we jump into those chapters today, so just a reminder on this podcast, we are going to be diving deep into every single chapter of Saga, and we're excited for you to read along with us. And for those of you who are on your first read-through
0: of this story, you may be interested to know, we have read now six chapters of this saga. There are 54 chapters that have been released so far. Those chapters are divided into volumes. Each volume is six chapters. So there's a total of nine volumes that have been released so far. And we can't wait to just, yeah, jump into every page, panel, surprise, twist, all of that with you as we continue with this podcast.
1: And of course, for longtime Saga fans who are looking forward to the new chapters that are coming in January 2022, we will, of course, be diving into those new chapters, starting with Chapter 55 on January 26th. We got an official release date.
0: It is literally less than six weeks away. I definitely have started to see on certain, shall we say, comics-focused social media accounts that I follow, the world is getting excited. Yeah. Saga is coming back with a new chapter for the first time in three and a half years. I, I cannot contain myself.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's incredibly exciting. Now, another note we want to make sure we say up top in these episodes is our read-along episodes, like today's episode, will be spoiler-free. So if you are jumping into the world of Saga for the first time, we invite you to read along with us, jump in, and learn all about this incredible story and meet this incredible family with us as we dive into these chapters. But if you are a longtime saga fan, we hope you'll still find value in these episodes because we're going deep, panel by panel, page by page, picking apart the tiniest of details that you might have missed on your previous read-throughs. And it has been honestly thrilling to realize how many of you are already listening
0: to this show just by looking at the download numbers and seeing like there's real people really engaging with us on this show which for me is truly a thrill if you want to engage with us even more if you have an idea or an opinion or if you think we're wrong or if you think we're super right send us an email so our email is hazelsstorypodcast all one word hazelsstorypodcast at gmail.com so send us your thoughts, ideas, impressions, things we missed maybe. I don't know. We could miss yeah. stuff. I've read this series four times, but I I still find new things to discover, <laughs> one of which I'm going to talk about later today. So yeah. there's a little, a little teaser for later on. I discovered something new in my reread of chapters four, five, and
1: six for this episode. Wow. Yeah, definitely. HazelStoryPodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget, folks, there's two S's in that. Now, diving into today's episode, the game plan is the same as it was last time. We're going to start with a brief summary of today's reading. Again, that's chapters four, five, and six today. Then we'll jump into two key takeaways that we want to break down further. And finally, we'll wrap up the episode by sharing our favorite panels and our favorite quotes from today's reading. Can't wait. Let's just get right into it. Alrighty. Chapter four. Now, This chapter, there are two main plots happening at the same time, and the story sort of cuts back and forth between them, scene by scene. Plot A is the Will's adventures on Sextillion, and plot B is Alana and Marco on Cleve. Instead of jumping back and forth like the comic does, in our summary here, what we're going to do is just take each individual plot at a time, just for clarity's sake, and so that we're not making it overly confusing and complicated.
0: I, I totally love that. I also love that this is basically like uh, a classic like TV show or cinema technique, right? Like every Simpsons episode, it always has an A plot and a B plot. <clears throat> this it, this chapter has these two stories that are happening at the same time. And like a movie or a TV show, it jumps back and forth. But yeah, for the purposes of following along, let's take them one at a time. And we'll start with The Will uh, on Sextillion. Just in case you were wondering what might sextillion involve, the very first panel of this chapter (laughs) is just a full page of what I actually think might be one of the weirdest things we've seen so far. Yeah. Which is if you start from the bottom of the panel and scan up, you see like two pairs of like, I guess, sexily drawn legs wearing fishnet stockings. And then you get up to where the torsos should be and there's just giant heads No necks, no torsos, (laughs) just like two women's giant heads, like smiling and like welcoming the will to sextillion. So immediately off the bat,
1: you're like, oh, oh, this is going to get fucking weird. I mean, talk about Brian K. Vaughn wanting to make a story that is unadaptable. This panel in particular might be unadaptable. <laughs> I always wonder, and it's just like one of those things where at some point we're just going to have to talk to these
0: creators, but like, how did the interplay of this work? Like, did Brian Kavon have in his script, like, the will arrives at Sextilian and is greeted by two greeters? Or did he have, like, outlined... The will is greeted by two greeters who are heads with legs and neither torsos nor necks. And then it was up to Fiona Staples to decide exactly what that looked like. I don't know. I I feel like it's some sort of perfect synergy that gets us this first image and just sets us off on our way.
1: Right. Someone in the room cracked a talking heads joke and someone else took that (laughs) a little too literally. (laughs) Sure. And it's a pair of talking heads. (laughs) Either way, the will is trying to get into sextillion and our pair of sexy talking heads tell him that... He can't enter until he removes his weapons and sends Lion Cat back to the ship. And the Will tries to push back. He says, quote, nah, see, Lioncat's my sidekick. The law says that he has just as much right, and then he gets cut off because the two talking heads aren't having it. And ultimately, the will's desire for satisfaction, let's say, wins out, and he sends Lion Cat back to the ship with his weapons. Much to Lion Cat's annoyance. So our guy is flying
0: solo. He's into this space brothel. And he starts walking through Sextillion, which we mentioned this last episode. Brian K. said he very much wanted this book to earn its mature rating. And we just get a couple (laughs) of pages, one after another, that Uh just earn that mature rating. There are sex acts taking place behind glass, right in front of him. All different kinds of sex acts with men, women, different creatures, all kinds of different I don't even know. At one point, I think I noticed like a multi-armed like lizard slug or something, but it had breasts and presumably genitalia. Very, very, very odd. What's interesting to me, though, is that as you get through all of that, the one thing you don't see in any of the creatures in this series of scenes of all of the like people partaking at Sextillion Is there's no one with horns. Right. So there's mostly, most of the patrons have wings and none of them have horns, which is already setting up this sort of dynamic that exists that even though this war has been raging between Wreath and Landfall, it does seem like the horns are the maybe slightly more oppressed of the two. They certainly have less access to technology. They seem like they have fewer, I don't know, civil liberties or something. Just one of those like little tiny things that I noticed on this reread that I'm like, oh, there are definitely no people from Wreath allowed in Sextillion, whether that's a written or an unwritten rule. Definitely don't want to risk Landfolians getting it on with Wreath folk, which again shows why it's such a big deal that our main characters got it on and had a kid.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's definitely this empire and rebels vibe, right? There's the polished, more powerful empire, and then there's seemingly sort of the rough and tumble rebels. For sure. Also, just to wrap up our commentary on what we
0: see from this part of sextillion special shouts to all the signs being shaped like penises (laughs) and what seems to be an inflatable dinosaur with some sort of Uh dildo attachment that's like purple the dinosaur i don't know it's there's a whole and that's like not even a main part of a panel it's just kind of like off to the side so (laughs) uh, again whether it was scripted by brian k vaughn or just came straight out of the imagination of fiona stables we tip our penis shaped hats to the both of you
1: absolutely So as the will is walking through Sextillion, he is not partaking in anything that he's seeing. And a groomer or a staff person of some sort walks up to him with this incredibly large, creepy smile. The dude has this like blockhead. And he approaches the will and he offers to take him to something he calls the inner core. And we learn that the inner core is where Sextillion keeps their, quote, most valuable employees all handpicked from camps across the galaxy, end quote. And this creepy employee then introduces the will to a worker that thus far he has only referred to as Slave Girl. And it turns out that Slave Girl is a six-year-old child. And on the panel that we see here, it's a full-page spread. She opens the door, and it's this little girl, and she says, quote, I'm six, I'll do anything you want, end quote, in response to the Will asking her how old she is. And in this moment, the Will is absolutely disgusted, as are we, and he expresses his disgust in spectacular fashion. He places his hands on this creepy employee's head and crushes his head, just curse (laughs) splat, And this gory, bloody explosion, blood spills over the Will's face on the little girl And that is the end of the creepy employee who was trying to uh, get the will to do heinous things with a slave girl.
0: Yeah, there's this extra layer of information that you get where he sort of elaborates on most valuable employees all handpicked from camps across the galaxy. Right. Like, yeah, these are all refugees. We pick refugee children because clearly there's a war that's spanning galaxies and wars create refugees, especially refugee children. So apparently there's like a sex trade in refugee children that's going on, which is another one of those gross, awful layers that is the real impacts of war being brought up in this. And immediately the will is just like, this has touched a nerve or something because his reaction is swift,
1: unyielding and final. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And that really harkens back to our takeaway from the last episode where we talked about how this story will not pull its punches. We will see the true horrors of war, and this is just another example. Children being pawned off into sex slavery and people taking advantage of this war and the refugees that it creates. Now, this first scene, this A-plot with the Will on sextillion in this chapter ends with the child with Slave Girl coming up to the will and saying, thank you. And for the moment, that's where that scene ends. Okay,
0: so that's the plot that takes place on Sextillion through this chapter. At the same time, intermixed, we've got Marco and Alana, who, if you remember from the last episode, uh, Marco is injured because he got shot by the stalk. And Alana is being guided by Isabel, the floating specter horror ghost teen, who says that she can get Alana to some snow, which is what Marco has said that he needs to be able to cast a spell that can heal him so he'll survive. Not convoluted at all. <laughs> anyway, so they in this chapter, they arrive at some place called the Fort in the Mountain. So there's some snow there, and Marco can use the snow to fuel his magic. And then while they wait for the magic to kick in, Alana is still super pissed because, remember, at the end of Chapter 3, we found out that there was some woman named Gwendolyn who Marco Mm -hmm. had some kind of relationship with. And Marco's still unconscious. Alana's super mad. Isabel is trying to chill her out, and she's just like, look. She says, quote, so what? He's good to you and Hazel now, isn't he? Who cares if he's got history with some other broad? And Alana is not in the mood for this. She claps back (laughs) with this, like, amazing line, quote, Forgive me if I don't take relationship advice from a dead teenager missing her vagina. (laughs) Which, fair play. All of of that is accurate. Um, As they're having this conversation, Marco finally wakes up. And even though she's super mad, Alana can't help but be relieved, which, understandable, right? The love of your life. Even when you're mad at them, you still love them. So she gives him a big kiss and they embrace. And (laughs) then, that doesn't mean, though, For those of you who have experienced this before, just because your partner still loves you does not mean they forgive you or have (laughs) let it go. So she's just like, what the fuck? And demands an explanation. We get a lot of backstory and exposition that doesn't feel heavy-handed, but we find out that Marco was engaged to the daughter of some vice minister on Mm Wreath, and that they were like dating in high school. And when Marco went off to war and saw the true horrors of the battlefield, he says, quote, I was becoming this completely new person, but she was frozen in place. Which, very real, very common. High school sweethearts, one of them grows in a direction, the other one doesn't, doesn't work out anymore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And Alana wants to double, triple check that there's no funny business. She asks Marco, is there any unfinished business between you and Gwendolyn? Should I be worried about anything? And Marco promises, no, there's nothing going on there. We have nothing to worry about, it's in the past. Except the wedding ring that I gave you is a translator ring that's actually Gwendolyn's, and she might want that back at some point. Whoops. (laughs) (laughs) And Alana, once again, gets an absolute zinger. She says, quote, great. So we can add scorned woman with missing family jewels to the long list of people who want us dead. End quote. (laughs) <laughs> it it's truly yeah it's amazing how many of the like good
0: strong like just put a ribbon on it end of scene lines that alana gets because i think she's supposed to be a little bit sharper and a little quicker than marco is and it totally comes
1: across yeah well now that that has been hashed out it's the next morning and we are still in enemy territory and we are still a wanted family and everyone gets a reminder of that because a land folly, and ship spots them and marco and alana realize that there is not enough time to escape these landfalling soldiers are about to arrive so marco reaches for his blade he unsheathes his sword and they come to the realization that there's only one choice left here stand and fight and that's where the chapter ends
0: yeah and this last page of the chapter is like super classic like almost superhero comic pose where it's like it's like almost manga a little bit or even like it reminds me of like image comics from the 90s where there's just like it's like oh man there's gonna be this epic battle and it's a cliffhanger and I can't wait and then as I'm reading this issue by issue chapter by chapter back in 2012 or whatever chapter five comes and you open the first page and guess what it does not pick up from the (laughs) chapter four cliffhanger instead what you get is uh, a wide shot of Prince Robot the Fourth sitting on a toilet in a latrine reading a romance (laughs) novel, which again, they're just playing with like all of these expectations and then delivering on other narratives. And like Prince Robot isn't even in chapter four, right? Like we get this totally separate narrative. And then you realize that like, we're gonna be following these different characters through their different storylines
1: at a pace of our creators choosing, which is great. Right, how dare you, Brian and Fiona, The emotional whiplash. Now, in this scene with the prince, I do want to point this out, Alan, because I found this kind of weird. He's not like on the toilet on the toilet. He's not pooping. He's like fully clothed. Pants are up. The toilet lid is down. He's just sitting there quietly in a latrine. And what comes to mind for me in this moment is, does he not have an office? Isn't he royalty? They couldn't find like a small side room for him to have some privacy. This is where he has to go when he wants to be alone. <laughs> well, it and it brings up the question for me of
0: d- do these robots do they poop?
1: Do they poop?
0: D- do do it's like the classic question. <laughs> do androids dream of electric sheep and do TV-headed robots have to poop? And I honestly right. <laughs> I don't know that we'll ever find out. I will say, though, I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, Leanne, who texted me just this panel today of Prince Robot in the latrine with the book Mm. and sitting Mm -hmm. on the toilet. And the text she sent me along with that was, she wrote, quote, just wanted you to know that I have this image in my mind now and it's your fault, unquote. So... (laughs) I am excited to know that friends of mine who've never read this book before have picked it up because of this podcast, and that kind of comment is the exact kind of feedback that we would love to get from any of our other listeners, too. I'm not going to give you all my cell phone number so you can text me, but you can email us (laughs) at hazelstorypodcast at gmail.com, and you can send us an email, uh, write out your thoughts, maybe an image from this book that got stuck in your head, or... You can also send us a voice memo, too, if you want to like record a voice memo on your phone or whatever and yeah. send us some impressions. We would love to include that in a, for- a future episode. So Leanne, thank you for your text. I appreciate that. Anyway, so now we're back to <laughs> Prince Robot in a room full of toilets. And as he's sitting there in this room full of toilets, he gets a call from the princess. And this is the princess, remember, who we last encountered having an intimate moment with Prince Robot. And mm-hmm. this call from the princess is for her to tell him that she's pregnant which Prince Robot is super excited about until she also tells him that he's not allowed to return to the robot kingdom until his current mission is complete, which is a pretty big bummer for him. He finds out he's going to be a dad, but that doesn't mean that he gets to come back home anytime
1: soon. Yeah, a real good news, bad news situation there. Now, meanwhile, Marco and Alana are finally facing off against these landfalling soldiers, that cliffhanger from the previous chapter. And the soldiers at first are a little bit confused because they do see Alana and they think she's a friendly, but they get confirmation over the radio that no, Marco and Alana are both enemies and they have the green light to engage. And so they open fire and in a really stress inducing panel, we see Alana get hit from the side and this makes Marco go full on berserk. I loved the artwork in this sequence. In a brutal couple of panels and pages, Marco starts hacking off limbs and breaking jaws and basically single-handedly overpowers this squad of soldiers with his magic and his sword. And just as he's about to literally murder one of them, Alana hits him with a stun gun and knocks him back to his senses. Quote, dear, that's enough. End quote. It's so good. It, it also answers the question
0: that I had had up to this point when I read this the first time of like, the landfall soldiers all have guns and spaceships and like weaponry. Yeah. And then the wreath soldiers have swords. And then in this moment, you're like, oh, but they're like Wolverine-esque, like berserker ragers who can just like go <laughs> wild and like chop people up with their swords and shit. And you're like, oh, I see. I see why this is a war that's been raging. There's definitely assets on both sides that they're able to exploit. Right. And let's not discount magic. Right. Totally. And like Marco kind of uses magic, like his sword is like magic flashy or something, which I think helps it deflect bullets, but- He doesn't even, like, cast any spells or anything like that. And still, he does not actually end up killing all these soldiers. He casts one spell, which is a binding spell that ties them all up. And that's the end of that scene. Then we cut back to Sextillion, where the Will, having, again, remember, squashed that guy's head real good, is attempting (laughs) to escape from Sextillion with Slave Girl. And as they're trying to flee, they get all the way outside almost to the parking lot, which is another one (laughs) one of those amazing just little, like, tiny details from this, that there's like a sign behind the wheel that just says like long-term parking this way. It's just like, (laughs) oh, right. Even in this like magic space bordello, there's still a parking garage. But he runs into, as he's exiting, the, I guess, boss, we understand from context cues of Sixtillion, whose name is Mama Sun, who's this giant purple woman in this like glorious gold, I don't know, sun headdress and like bodice and stuff like that. And she's got Lion Cat. And she's holding Lioncat hostage and is basically like, you can't take my employee, my property in slave right. The whale is like, no, I'm going to do it anyway. And then she's like, you better not because she reveals that all of the Sextilian employees, slaves, whatever they are, are injected with a security elixir, which will kill them if they leave Sextillion before their contract is finished. Lioncat does... lying cat uh, lie detector thing and converts this is true and the will has no choice but to give up in a desperate move showing just how intent he is on like getting this girl out of this sex slavery situation Mm -hmm. he offers Mm -hmm. to buy out the remainder of her contract but it's like 650,000 credits or whatever and he doesn't have that cash on hand right now so he's sort of forced
1: to slink back to his ship to try and figure out another plan. Yeah, considering the bachelor's lunch he was having in the previous couple of chapters. Right. I don't see the will as someone who's very liquid right now. No, no. <laughs> Which is like a classic bounty hunter trope, right? Like bounty hunters
0: live like bounty to bounty. They never have any money. They're always yeah. spending it in saloons or whatever.
1: Right, right. 650000 a little bit out of his reach. We then cut back to Cleve, where Marco and Alana have commandeered the Landfallian soldiers' ship. And they are on their way to this rocket ship forest. Marco is basically anxious that him sort of going berserk and using violence and breaking this vow that we know he has taken has cursed them, has cursed him and his family. He says, quote, conflict always has consequences. Always. Sooner or later, our family will pay for what happened today. End quote. And In response, Alana is a bit more practical, which is very on brand for her. She says, eh, so the guy whose hand you lopped off comes after us with a hook in 20 years. (laughs) Add him to the list. At least we lived to fight again, end quote. And it's in this moment, while they're having this back and forth, that baby Hazel interrupts the argument with the cutest little baby giggle. She starts (laughs) laughing, which just absolutely melts not only her parents' hearts, but our hearts as well. It totally breaks the tension in the scene. And at this point, Alana laughs and reminds us all what's most important here. We're alive. We've got each other. And the rocket ship forest is right around the corner. Face it. Today was a good day. End quote. And for this family, I'd say today is a pretty good day. All things considered. (laughs) Although at the same time, I feel like every time that
0: Brian Kavon sets up like a little bit of these like interlude moments, you know something awful is about to happen.
1: Oh yeah. Like it's yeah. it's
0: just like he's like he like lets you feel like, oh, okay, cool, we're good, everything's fine. And then we are in the very next scene where we have got our friend the stalk, remember a spider lady bounty hunter, has apparently escaped the wild boars that she was running from the last time we saw her. And she's now inspecting the scene where Marco dispatched and bound up all these landfall soldiers. And she's confused because the landfall soldiers are still alive. And so she says something like, well, that's a new one, because clearly they're used to seeing whenever people from Wreath encounter landfallian soldiers, they just murder them all or kill them all in combat, whatever, she's surprised these ones are still alive. And as she's looking at these guys who are all bound on the ground, Spider-Man style, she gets a phone call and it's the Will. And he's changed his mind. He does actually want to partner up with her because he needs the money, you know, to save a child from sexual slavery. Uh, But before the stock can answer what Will has proposed, as she's still holding her phone in her hand, Prince Robot IV shows up with his entourage of soldiers. And in this very tense moment, one of the soldiers, like, thinks the stock with one of her eight arms is reaching for a weapon. And in the panel, it looks like maybe she is, but it's unclear. Then Prince Robot's TV screen face, like, flashes to thoughts of his, like, newly had unborn child. And he like does the thing where he can turn his hand into a gun and the hand cannon blasts a giant hole right through the middle of the abdomen, chest, thorax, I don't know, of the stalk. (laughs) And she falls down on the ground, clearly instantly dead. And in a nice little sort of nod to the fact that she's a spider, all of her spider legs like curl up to the center of her body, like what happens when a bug dies. Right. Oof. And that's it. That's the end of... The stock, that's the end of this chapter. We're five chapters in and we've already got a seemingly pretty main character just killed at the drop of a hat.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine what it must have been reading this in real time to wait a month to see what happens next. Ugh. Awful. Luckily, we don't have to wait a month because chapter six, the final chapter of today's reading and of this first arc of the story, the first volume, opens up with Alana and Marco finally, finally arriving at the rocket ship forest. Unfortunately, they arrive at what appears to be a completely burned out wasteland, not a single tree in sight. And it's at this moment that Isabel wakes up. We learned earlier that she only comes out at night. She's a ghost. She does ghost things. (laughs) And she informs them that, nah, there's nothing to worry about, guys. And she lifts... An illusion and bam rocket ship tree, folks. And what's amazing, and I almost picked this as
0: my favorite panel, but Mm. because I had forgotten how they do this, just to show the sort of like grand coolness of what a rocket ship tree or a tree rocket ship, whatever it is, they do a full two page like panel, but it you have to turn the book sideways if you're reading a physical copy in order to see it. It's like a centerfold, but it's a centerfold of a rocket ship tree, which is just cool. It's just like a cool, fun thing. uh, If you're reading the paper copy that it actually is like this two-page thing where you actually have to like turn and look at it to be able to look at it. My wife saw me doing it and she was like, are are you looking at porn on paper? I was
1: like, no, it's a comic book. And she's like- No, honey, it's a comic book. It's nerd shit, leave me alone. (laughs) But so what they find
0: out is Right, that there is this rocket ship, there is this rocket ship tree, and yeah, Isabel was just hiding it with one of her horror illusions that she has the power to do, presumably so that like the Landfallian soldiers or the Wreath soldiers uh, don't discover this rocket ship tree. So then we cut away from them having discovered the secret tree rocket ship to Prince Robot Fourth standing over the dead body of the stalk, And the will is still on the phone. Mm-hmm. So the will is like yelling, trying to figure out what happened, having presumably heard whatever terrible, god-awful sound a Prince Robot hand cannon makes. And Prince Robot picks up the phone and tells the will what happened in a very straightforward, what I assume, it was only in this scene that I was like, is Prince Robot supposed to have a British accent? Because he sort of is like prim and proper about all this. The Will is not happy. The Will is like, he says, listen to my voice, boy. I aim to murder you right after I murder everything you ever loved. Which is like, you know, classic badass, like sort of Bruce Willis and Die Hard-like thing. And Prince Robot IV just kind of looks at him. And I think he says something just like, psychopaths, psychopaths, all of them. Which in my head, he was saying in like a C-3PO voice almost. And- It then cuts away from that back to the will in this super intense series of panels without any dialogue at all, these like silent panels where you just see the will processing the fact that this woman that he clearly was very, very in love with, this woman spider, <laughs> that he was very in love with her. And the fact that she's yeah. died tragically has just like really fucked him up. And like the end of the sequence is Lion cat looking super sad because she knows that her
1: guy is not doing well. Yeah, yeah, it's the look on Lion cat's face that really, really got me in this scene. Props to Fiona and the way she does faces, even for cats, it's so good. Now back at the tree rocket ship, Marco and Alana learn that they have to make a sacrifice before the ship will turn on and allow them to enter. And so Marco decides to break his family heirloom, which is the sword that we saw him use in the previous chapters. This sword has apparently been in his family for a thousand generations. And when Alana is like, wait, 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 Marco, are you sure? He responds, quote, it's still just a thing, Alana. Besides, you're my family now. End quote. And at this point, I'm like, tears are rolling down my face. They successfully enter the ship. The ship accepts this sacrifice after he breaks his sword. And they're welcomed into this gorgeous foyer full of leaves and these glowing mushrooms. And once again, I keep raving about the incredible artwork. This looks like a foyer that I also would want to spend a lot of time. In. It looks very cozy. It looks lovely. The ship then takes off and no one is driving? And Isabel explains pretty casually, quote, dude, you don't steer a rocket ship. You ride it, end quote. As if that is the most obvious thing in the world. Some classic teen-tude there, right? Like, dude, (laughs) God, (laughs) can you believe you don't even know about tree rocket ships? (laughs) Exactly. That's the exact attitude there. And Alana, in this moment, takes the opportunity to touch the bark of the tree rocket ship, and ask the tree to take them to a planet called Quietus, the lighthouse planet, in order to meet someone that she refers to as, quote, the smartest person in the universe. So
0: that leaves basically a little hint of perhaps what the next story arc is going to be about. Meanwhile, we got some stuff to wrap up, right? So we go back to Prince Robot IV. He's found the Stalk's ship, which he previously had told the Will in their very matter-of-fact conversation that he was going to seize as part of some royal edict. He gets the right to do that. So as he's coming onto the ship, he gets a call. I love that everybody just has like regular phones that like we're in this like you know galactic empire where they have all this technology right. but people are still on like handheld cell phones which cool and The call is from Special Agent Gale of Landfall Secret Intelligence, who we recognize from the earlier chapters. He's the guy who was introduced by our main man, the Alligator Butler, who we talked about probably too much in the last episode. (laughs) But Gale was the special agent who came in and initially told Prince Robot about Alana and Marco and their baby. That's right. And it's funny because the way that he's depicted they say agent and you think like secret agent, like FBI agent. But the way he's got like his feet up on his desk in this panel where they draw him, I'm like, he just kind of looks like a sleazy Hollywood agent. <laughs> and like maybe there's some distinction or maybe there's some like double entendre thing about what an agent is or an agent does. But either way, he seems like he's up to no good. And he says he's calling to tell Prince Robot that the stock was hired by Wreath High Command because they know now about Marco and Alana and Hazel. Which, remember, the whole point was Prince Robot was supposed to go and kill him before anybody found out. So clearly, Mm -hmm. that has not occurred. And then, as Prince Robot is wondering where these targets have flown off to, he's got that romance novel from earlier that he got from all the way back at the prison camp where Alana used to work. And he's flipping through it, and he gets to the author page, and he finds out that the author, D. Oswald Heist, excellent name, lives (laughs) on a planet called Quietus.
1: So it looks like everybody is headed to Quietus. That's right. Now, back on the rocket ship, as it hurtles through space, we get some Hazel narration, which to this point, we haven't gotten a whole lot of. But at this moment, we learn that Hazel has enjoyed her time on the rocket ship. She says, quote, Most of my childhood was spent clinging to the feathers of a dulled arrow blindly fired across a starless night. It was heaven. For a while, anyway. Ends quote.
0: Which the pairing of that narration with the art from that Fiona draws in those panels is so perfect, gorgeous. Because you you realize that like yeah the the dulled arrow f- blindly fired across a starless night is the rocket ship, and it like goes wide and then like zooms in, and you get this like weird mixture of technology and organic stuff that this book is just so good at. And I just like, and it's it like sort of fills you with this warm glow, and then you get the caveat that always comes at the end, which is the for a while anyway, and you're like, God damn it.
1: Right, right, there's always a but. Now for the moment though, we do see the family enjoy a moment of respite. Marco and Hazel are looking out of the little window of the rocket ship out at the stars, and Alana is doing the very normal thing that I would also love to do in this moment after running for my life, taking a shower. But of course, Things quickly turn for the worse because lights start flaring and the ship warns them that they've got magic incoming. And at that moment, two armed and masked individuals who notably have horns attack our family. They've appeared on the ship out of nowhere. Which is wild because you're like, what is happening? And then
0: Marco, though, then says something or other about like breaking the blade must have summoned her. But before they can give any explanation, Alana is thinking that the her might be Gwendolyn, but that doesn't make any sense. And then there's like shots fired and one of the people who just showed up shoots some magic zappy stuff at Isabel and you're like, fuck, I hope she's okay. Can magic hurt a ghost? Uh, (laughs) And then Marco yells something out in the blue language at these two people who've shown up. And they freeze. And then he holds up a baby so the attackers can see Hazel's horns and wings. And he says these two sentences. He says, Tio estas mia edzino, Tio estas mia bebo. And when I was reading that, I was like, all right, I know that this is a thing in this book where we have this language blue that they never provide subtitles for. Right. And it's funny because I'd never thought about this. Like, what is this language? Did Brian K. Vaughn just make it up? Ends up, he did not. It ends up, and I I Googled this in prep for this episode, ends up that blue is just Esperanto. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> How weird is that? So Esperanto, for those of you perhaps not familiar, is the most widely used constructed language that humans have ever invented. It was invented in like the 1890s in an effort to like achieve world peace by coming up with a truly new, truly universal language that everyone would speak, but clearly, because it's 130 years later and none of us are speaking Esperanto, it didn't work. Right. Like Esperanto yeah. became like a novelty language <laughs> that like linguistics nerds learn because it's fun. But yeah, apparently Brian came on rather than coming up with like, you know, one of those fictional languages in like Game of Thrones or something, he's just like, fuck it. I'm just going to use Esperanto. And apparently I was like reading on Reddit. It's like really lazily translated Esperanto. <laughs> oh like it's all like God. literally That's translated. Brilliant. Like he used Google Translate, <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> And apparently he's been asked about it once and he like kind of hemmed and hawed and said something or other about like trying to show how like, you know, it doesn't matter what the language is. It creates barriers. I don't know. It sounds a little bit like the the, the guy may have just like been like, yeah, sure. Esperanto, whatever. That'll be fun.
1: Right. But right.
0: what is great about that is that it means we can translate these sentences. So I threw these two sentences into Google Translate and I got what Marco says in that moment is that's my wife and this is my baby, which would very clearly stop somebody in their tracks if they cared about those two things. Yeah. And we get clarity on how all of that works when the two attackers kind of stop. And then we cut to another panel where they look confused. They both have taken their helmets and masks off. And then Hazel's narration explains the whole thing in a hilarious sitcom style mix-up is... (laughs) And then my grandparents came to live with us. Oh, my God. And that's it. That's that's the end of chapter six. That's the end of this story arc. All of a sudden, we're left with Marco's parents, I guess. Wow. And it's delightful. Just a, a whirlwind of chapters, yet another wild cliffhanger. That has been a lot. So we're going to take a yeah. quick break to catch our breath. We'll be right back to talk through our big takeaways from these chapters, as well as our favorite writing and art right after this.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna go take a shower. I hope my parents don't show up armed and ready to fucking tussle.
0: <laughs> or your in-laws, right? Like that's, that's the worst. Like Alana <laughs> is taking a nice shower and she gets out of her nice shower for the first time. And you know, they've been on wreath for like a week. And then all of a sudden in-laws that she didn't know she had show up literally bearing weapons. Okay. Welcome back. It's hard to believe that the second half of this opening story arc could top the first, but these three chapters have set us up for the journey of the rest of the story that follows figuratively and literally they're flying around in a rocket ship now. So <laughs> every space opera needs some space travel. Now we're flying through space. Right, right. But before we get to that, it's time for our big takeaways from these chapters. So Abu, why don't you kick it off?
1: Okay. So our first big takeaway from today's reading is violence begets violence. This is a core, core theme in this story. We're gonna see this theme come up time and time again. And it's this idea that violence is not the answer to violence. It's something that Marco has been saying time and time again. He's taken that vow. Many of our characters that we've met so far are caught up in this whirlwind of a galactic war a war that has touched everyone in this universe. No one is exempt from some sort of collateral damage or directly taking part in this war. And for many of the people in this galaxy, fighting is the same thing as surviving. Our family at the center of this conflict has fought every second since Hazel was born to survive. And what I love is that that makes... Marco's vow against violence that he takes that much more powerful. Because in this world, in this universe, embroiled in this conflict, that vow also feels like him gambling his very survival and his very future. And not just his own, but also his wife and his child's, his family's future. When it seems
0: like he had some kind of awakening, right? Like he must have had something happen in combat that was so horrible that he was like, you know what? I know that we have to fight to survive in this world, but I just, I can't do it anymore. I have to stop. I have to break the cycle.
1: Yeah, exactly. Break the cycle. This cyclical nature of violence and vengeance, such a central theme here. And you're right. Like I think Marco, somewhere in the past, before the start of this story where we jumped in, witnessed something probably on the battlefield, probably the same thing that changed his life path away from Gwendolyn, his high school sweetheart, Marco is not the same person he was when he entered this war. And because of that, he's taken this vow. And what's really powerful in these first six chapters in this first volume is we're already starting to see how our characters' violent actions are beginning to either bite them in the ass or setting up future events that we know or suspect will bite them in the ass someday. Just to rattle off a few examples, the will squashed a dude's head. You really can't go around squashing people's heads without some sort of consequences. He's obviously trying to save this little slave girl who has immediately become attached to him, and now he's going to great lengths to save her. We can probably safely assume that that's going to lead him on one hell of an adventure to try and save this girl. And I doubt that Sextillion is going to forget one of their employees getting their heads squashed by this guy. The Stalk, who has made a career out of violence, in these chapters found herself on the other end of a robot hand cannon and literally got killed. Prince Robot himself... Is a soldier, and now we know soon to be father. And in a heated moment, he kills the stock and angers the will. And there again, he kicks off another cycle of violence and vengeance. The will is now out for the prince's blood. And then, of course, Marco, in his berserker mode against the landfalling soldiers, nearly kills a person. And Alana even jokes about the hooked hand man coming after them after twenty years, but. Marco has potentially made even more enemies that will come after him and his family in the future. All of these acts of violence that we have seen in these chapters today, it's a very action-packed set of chapters. A lot of those have been violent acts, and we can already start to predict that some of those acts are going to result in more violence and more people wanting vengeance. And what I love is at the heart of this very gory, gut-filled story is a message against war and violence at its core. It's a warning that violence and retribution are cyclical and never-ending. They're things that grow and feed on each other and continue to do so unless that cycle is broken in some way. And we talked about this in the previous chapter, Alan, but a message like that, if handled incorrectly, could come off as really preachy and lame. But instead in this story, the way that Brian and Fiona handle this story— It just comes off as so genuine and so meaningful, and I think so impactful.
0: There is no action in this story that won't have some sort of reaction.
1: Even something
0: as simple as breaking your family sword has an immediate consequence, right? Like Marco's parents literally travel through space and teleport onto a moving rocket ship, just because there's all of this that's messy and tied up and the consequences of everything, nobody is gonna be able to make a choice or take an action in this story without there being a consequence as a result, which I'd I love that as a takeaway. And I, I feel like all of our takeaways so far from these first few
1: chapters are probably gonna stay relevant for the rest of the story. Yeah, definitely. It, it's a message that I think Justin Timberlake has been trying to tell us for years too. <laughs> what goes around comes around, Alan. Brian K. Vaughn, <laughs> Justin Timberlake, we're, they're all on the same page. <laughs>
0: Touche, sir. <laughs> Touche. So it's funny, my takeaway from these chapters is related to yours. And it's just something that I ended up thinking about as I was reading through these, mm-hmm. which is that we have this world that is being built for us, this external world that our characters are moving through, that seems like, for lack of a better phrase, sort of amoral. It's like they're, at least the parts of it that we're seeing, are either like very brutal, amoral, like no compassion, no sympathy war, where just like people are killing each other. There's a prison camp where prisoners are abused. Like nobody's making any real big moral stances anywhere within yeah. war. And then we go to Sextillion, where we learn not only is this a, a brothel or a bordello, but it's a brothel or a bordello that exploits refugee children. So really, as far as moral compasses go, we're we're pointing straight, straight at, at evil there. Yeah, yeah. So this is the universe that we're operating in, right? And we've got assassins that are sanctioned and like violence is everywhere. And clearly this war is unjust and immoral. But for all of that, all of our characters have these incredibly strong moral stances that they keep taking. Like even from the very beginning of the very first chapter, Marco makes this vow of nonviolence, right? Like based on some moral code he has, as we have made the assumption, some trauma of war. And then later on in another chapter, Alana has her conviction that she has to show her daughter the galaxy. And like, you know, that, that is like this stance that she's taking. And so the same thing happens here in these chapters where, you know, the will could have absolutely found out that there was child refugees being exploited and sex trafficked. And just the universe and the world and everything in this says he's a professional. He turns around and he walks away, but he doesn't hesitate for a second. As soon as he finds out that she's a child and she's being exploited, you can see the look on his face. He's going to do something about it, mm-hmm. which again, for him, probably also based on some past trauma. And then even Prince Robot taking out the stalk because he wants to be a father and he wants to be able to get back to his you know, wife and child. Even that is based on some kind of fucked up, but still like moral conviction, like all of these... Characters are taking these stances that feel sort of like old fashioned, like romantic, chivalric ideas of like honor and standing up for what's right, which is somehow in total contrast to this universe and the rest of this universe that seems to give no fucks about what's right or wrong. Like that kind of morality seems to have vanished in this sort of like post capitalistic, whatever war torn wasteland. And it gave me pause as I was reading this to be like, maybe that's what makes our characters special in this world Mm -hmm. is that they're not quite made for this universe and that they're kind of out of sync with the reality that's around them and that they'll sort of like keep fighting and keep striving for what's right or to do what's right or that they'll at least try where it seems like all of the rest of our characters except for our friend alligator butler i'm pretty sure he's pretty moral (laughs) all the rest of our characters just (laughs) seem to have like thrown their convictions out, and no fucks given for the livelihood or happiness of anybody. Yeah.
1: Alligator butler's just trying to earn a paycheck, go back to <laughs> Mrs. Alligator. You don't know. May-
0: maybe he's married to a salamander. Who knows? Love is love, whether it's alligator,
1: salamander, or any kind of creature. That's true. That's true. Now, I-, I love this point, Alan, because I think what's also interesting, to your point that these characters have these strong moral convictions in a universe that is seemingly amoral creates this tension, right? Because now we've plopped these characters into this war, into this universe that Brian and Fiona have created. And what's interesting to me is watching whether or not they break, right? How Mm -hmm. long can these characters exist in a, a moral universe like this? Right. How willing are they to commit to their convictions? We saw Marco break his vow and nearly murder someone because of a threat to his family. So what will what will it take to break these characters? Right. His vow of nonviolence from chapter
0: one lasted until chapter five, <laughs> which if <laughs> right. I'm keeping my timeline straight was like a week. They were yeah, a wreath yeah. wandering around for like a week. So given, yeah. he did that because he was protecting his family. And I think that you've made a really, really important observation is it's like these characters do have their codes, their moral compasses, but what is more important to them than that morality and what will cause them to be able to make compromises where they might not otherwise have done that, which I guess is sort of a universal of of the human condition is that everybody, you know, what's that old expression Mike Tyson said once, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. (laughs) Like everybody has their convictions, everybody has their ideas of who they will be, but until they're tested, you never know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I will say to your point earlier about the Will and Slave Girl and that potentially being based off of some past trauma of his, I'm curious what your read is on that scene because in that moment, I found myself going, hmm, didn't think the Will had this in him, right? Because he has been portrayed thus far as a character who would potentially shrug this off or a character who'd be like, I've seen 10 times worse than this. This is not the worst I've seen. This is not my problem. I'm going to walk away. But he doesn't. There There, is no moment of hesitation. He is immediately furious and he immediately starts cracking heads is the wrong phrase for what he does. But there's a <laughs> phrase out there for what he does. Yeah, it's well, and it's interesting too because the very last thing that the
0: smiley-faced square-headed guy says before he dies is something to the effect of, I don't understand why you have a problem with this. You're a freelancer. You've killed dozens of children, I'm sure. Yeah. So yeah, it's like interesting for to point out that like typically in this world, like freelancers have no morality. They'll kill anybody that they're paid to, men, women, children, whatever. So there's something here though, either with the will and children or with the will and children and sexual slavery specifically that just made this non-negotiable for him. Something that he had to just like jump right in and clap back. In the way that he's <laughs> which is a segue into uh, us talking about our favorite panels from these chapters, because yeah. I actually, I know it's weird to say this is my favorite panel from this chapter, but the panel that shows the way in which the will kills the like sex trafficker mm. is just amazing. The context gets set up where he's standing near this guy realizes what this guy has done like in the next panel you've got his hands are on either side of this guy's head and you're like what the fuck is he doing what is happening and then in the very next panel like no motion lines no nothing his hands are together and there's just viscera going fucking everywhere
1: yeah it's just like it's yeah. so
0: shocking and so just like what? Yeah. Visceral is the only word I can think of. Cause like the will's face is literally left covered in like viscera and blood and there's teeth flying everywhere. This like big toothy grin that this guy has had. I'm like, oh, that's what that was there for. So you could literally have somebody draw teeth flying in every given direction. And there's just like something really shocking about this level of gore. And it's like kind of a big surprise. Yeah, Like for me also, I was just like,
1: how did he do that? Right. How strong is the will? Right. Does he have superpowers? Is he like Hulk? He's like the Hulk over here? Or, or the sex traffickers, alien species, just have really squishy heads. You know, it's, it's got to be one or the other. I guess his head is
0: made of jello or something. I don't know. It's like, it's and it's wild because like the way that Fiona Staples draws it, there's nothing, there's no like magic lines or any of that. He smashes it and it explodes. Yeah. It, it yeah. smash explodes. Is, is that a thing? Smash blow? Is that a word? Regardless, it's like so intensely graphic and it's yeah. like, yeah, gore, horror movie, like splatter stuff. Yes. And at the same time, it's immensely satisfying because you're just like, fuck yeah, that's what that guy deserves. This person who has like trafficked like refugee children. Yes. Smash blow his head and move right along.
1: Yeah, definitely. No, uh, that's exactly the word I was going to say too, is satisfying. Like, I don't want to see the will react. I don't need the panel of the of the movement lines and the action. I just want to see this sex trafficker dead. And I flip the page, and that's exactly what I get. It is so satisfying to flip to that panel and see the way that the will reacts there. That's a great pick.
0: It's also, it's really great because again, I was reading this in the paper book and it's always fun to me to see the way that they lay out pages that they knew were gonna face each other. So at the bottom of the left-hand page is where you have smash-sploding the head. But then in the bottom of the right-hand page is the final panel in this sequence where the little girl is hugging
1: the will, still
0: all covered in blood and saying, thank you. So you have like this literal direct cause and effect on one side of the book versus the other side of the
1: book. I love it. Okay, so let me share my favorite panel My pick for today's episode is actually the final full page spread that we get at the end of today's reading, at the end of chapter six, of Marco's parents, as they realize what their son has just told them. That is my wife, and that is my baby. And I just want to, once again, for maybe like the 10th time this episode, (laughs) shout out Fiona (laughs) Staples' incredible artwork here, and particularly how she draws faces, because In this moment, before either of these two characters have had a chance to speak, before we have even officially met them, Mm -hmm. we can already predict what their personalities might be like, just based off of those facial expressions. Marco's mom looks furious, while his dad looks sort of confused and sad. And we can already guess the potential dynamic that exists between the two parents, and also between them and Marco, just based off of this one full-page panel, this cliffhanger that we end on. And on a more personal note, I think this panel hits me a little differently too because (laughs) without getting into too much detail, we don't need to turn this into a booze therapy hour, but (laughs) as a son of very conservative immigrant parents, it's really hard for me not to empathize with Marco in this situation and in this scene just the context Mm -hmm. of this scene, Marco up to this point in his life has made some decisions that Mm -hmm. are not only massively consequential in like a galactic war sense, but also are very personal in ways that his parents would clearly disapprove of. He Mm -hmm. has a baby with the enemy. His parents are both in full armor and weaponry, like they're soldiers. And to watch their son fraternize with the enemy and have a child with them, it, it's it's gonna rock their world. We we know that once again, just from this one panel, just from the way that Fiona drew this incredible scene. And as someone who has spent a lifetime making decisions that my own parents disapprove of, I get it. I, I'd be shitting breaks in this moment too. So this panel really hits me on a on a personal level, but also just in the way that the art and storytelling is so effective here.
0: Yeah, it tells just volumes. Because it's a part of the story that we haven't super dug into of, like, what would the... You get a little bit of, like, prejudices back and forth. There's some, like, vaguely sounding, like, racial slurry terms that they use, the horns and the wings, and that they use to refer to each other. But it, like, gets into that star-crossed lovers part of it, right? Like, yeah. that part where it's like, oh, right. This is, like, not only forbidden, like... Capulets and the Montagues from Romeo and Juliet. This is literally two planetoid species that have been at war for God only knows how many generations. This is like the ultimate thing, the ultimate like embarrassing guess who's coming to dinner moment. And yeah, not only yeah. does he have a partner who is of this like enemy race, they've created a child somehow, which is not even supposed to be possible.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even consider that, just the whole biological question mark of it, like, how did you do that exactly?
0: (laughs) I love that page. I I remember, like, getting to the end of this and not being ready at all for that, like, because the way that it's set up, you get all of these scenes that keep happening where, like, wreath soldiers will like, port in, and then they'll just, like, you know, they'll have to be dispatched or whatever, and you're like, oh, no, this is a family thing. Oh. yeah oh shit.
1: <laughs> we talked about how this story veers from epic space opera to soap opera in a blink, in the blink of an eye. And here we are once again. Well, and in the most personal ways, which
0: is just like, yeah. you know, the, the relationship between parents and a partner and parents and their kid. Like that's, that's the big one. Right. Okay. So that was the pictures. What about words? What really stuck with you from these chapters? Like what words were really like lodged in your brain when you read them?
1: Okay, so my pick for favorite quote today was when Marco decides he's going to break this precious family heirloom, the sword that's been in his family for a thousand generations. He says, quote, when a man carries an instrument of violence, he'll always find the justification to use it. If we really want to escape this war, we have to stop bringing it with us, Ends quote. And that just hit me so hard. That that I think we, we've talked... All throughout today's episode in the summaries and in the takeaways, this idea of violence and this story being a message about the cyclical nature of retribution and violence. This right here feels like a thesis statement from Marco. This is why he's taking his vow. He has seen what he can do with this sword and the way he's tempted with it, the way he was tempted with it just a few chapters ago when Alana was hit by those Landfallian soldiers. Mm-hmm. And he's choosing here to take this drastic measure to destroy the sword so that he's never even tempted to use it. And we've talked about how fighting is equal to surviving in this galaxy. This may be a little naive, yes, but I just love the sentiment so much. And I also love that in the next panel, Isabella and Alana are like whispering to each other and they're both clearly a bit more practical in this moment. Isabel asks, "You're not ditching your Reagan, are you, Alana?" And Alana's response is not a fucking chance. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I do love that there are some practical women here, and the sort of uh, more ideological Marco still gets to commit to his vow here. Props to Marco here for taking this leap and taking that step. It's it's funny that that's your interpretation because I, every time I've read this
0: story and just in even reading these chapters. I find, like, Marco's, like, stoic pronouncements and, like, grand speeches and stuff just, like, totally... Insufferable. <laughs> I just like meanwhile, like Alana and Isabel are like getting stuff done and ensuring people are actually safe. And meanwhile, he's right like making these grand pronouncements that it's sort of like he has the privilege to make because these other people he's with are actually getting shit done. Great point. And it's an yeah. interesting thing. Both of them are coming from whatever background of experiences they've had. And clearly, maybe part of the magical culture on Wreath is that you're more likely to make like sort of wizard pronouncements, right? Like you make these big grandiose (laughs) statements because that's like the culture. Whereas Alana's planet's culture seems to be a little more contemporarily tied to maybe what we'd see in Earth Where, you know, she says things like, not a fucking chance or whatever. It's just like, it's an interesting way that they're sort of blending the language of genres. For me, I think the the best writing that I really enjoyed in these chapters comes at the beginning of chapter six. Chapter six opens with an amazing exchange between Marco and Alana, which is not actually my favorite writing, but I would like to highlight it. And so it opens and they're getting out of the spaceship and Marco's carrying Hazel. And (laughs) Marco just says, ow, 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 ow. She's obsessed with my (laughs) neck flesh. And Alana responds, I know. Her fingernails are like little hypodermics, which is one of these amazing like true to life things where clearly Brian Kavon wrote this as he was raising a a small infant. Because one of the things nobody tells you about tiny babies who are like under six months old is their nails Uh grow incredibly quickly. And they're so small and super thin that they're like little razor blades. And you have to cut them constantly. Otherwise, you know, babies like to just sort of like interact with things and they will claw the shit out of any part of you that they can get to and <laughs> wow. they will not and they will not care. But the thing that comes right after that is something that Hazel says as a narrator, as Alana and Marco are caring for her. So the narration says, quote, everyone had a father, even if he never provided anything more than his seed. Everyone had a mother, even if she had to leave us on a stranger's doorstep. No matter how we're eventually raised, all our stories begin the exact same way they all end the same too. So this is one of those things where you get a series of panels as like Alana and Marco are taking care of Hazel and you get this narration that's written over the top of it. And like, Mm -hmm. fuck that's intense and dark. It starts out with this thing that you think is gonna be like a really uplifting connection, talking about all living beings are born and they have parents and how wonderful that is that all our stories begin in the same way. But then it's this book. So it takes this like, record scratch, like quick turn right at the end, to this like super fatalistic existential logic that like, well, but yeah, then we all just die, right? So like, yeah, it all ends the same way. We're all, you know, fucking dead. So whatever. It it reminds me also this line of some narration that we get from Hazel in the earlier chapters from this story arc where she has a bunch of narration where she's talking about her parents. And she says, quote, but thanks to these two, at least I get to grow old. Not everybody does. Yeah, Which is just like this thing. You're getting more and more as a sense from adult Hazel looking back and telling us this story that like adult Hazel has seen some shit and she's experienced loss and death and like who knows what through the course of this story that we are watching unfold. And it's happening on this scale that has clearly like impacted her severely. And I, you know- it like almost goes beyond foreshadowing to it's like, it's like dread shadowing or something like that. where like, we know that like bad, bad things are going to happen to all of the people in this book and all the characters that we're going to enjoy. But just in case you haven't fully encompassed it, narrator Hazel drops these little hints here and there that like, we're all connected,
1: but we're all going to die. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I love that line too. It's so good. And I I think, Adult Hazel has definitely seen some shit, but in these first chapters, baby Hazel has already seen plenty of shit, too. The very first thing she sees in this world is two squads of soldiers completely wipe each other out.
0: Yeah, I I will say that one of the things that baby Hazel does not do that is not realistic to having a small child is she never cries at any like loud noises or like terrible things that are happening, which is not realistic. (laughs) Babies cry at the drop of a hat and they're scared by everything.
1: Right, right.
0: Okay, so I don't know about you, but I am even more into this story and these characters than I was before we started this. I yeah. am uh, so into this conversation that you and I are having about it and sharing it with all of the people that are listening to this show. I can't wait to see uh, who we're going to meet next on whatever this place Quietus has to offer as we dig into our next set of
1: chapters. That's right, that's right. We're going to be diving into volume two, the next arc of the story in our next Episode, But because it's the holidays and we also have families and obligations, we are going to be taking a little end of year holiday break. So that means for our next episode, which will be out in three weeks instead of the usual two, make sure that you've read through chapter nine. So that's chapters seven, eight, and nine, which is the first half of volume two. And you should read that before our next episode comes out, which will be
0: Thursday, January 6th, 2022.
1: Well, friends, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast's survival, but there are no guarantees. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to check out the other great shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network at loreparty.com.
0: You can also listen to our show on Spotify or any other platform where you enjoy podcasts. And you can follow our whole network, Lore Party, on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Also, we forgot, mostly I forgot, to mention in the last episode, but <laughs> all the music on this show was originally composed by our Lore Party partner and friend, Lawrence Kelly, who makes all kinds of amazing music. You can follow him on Twitter at Produced by, all one word, underscore LK. I'll put that in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter. If that's a thing you're interested in doing, I'm at a Haberchak, A-H-A-B-U-R-C-H-A-K. And Abu is also on Twitter at Abu underscore Zafar, A-B-U underscore Z-A-F-A-R. Although I will warn you, if you follow Abu, he mostly tweets a lot about some book about sand or something. I don't know. He's <laughs> always talking about sand, dude. It's
1: an iconic sci-fi book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening. And remember, podcasts are fragile things. But just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, we'll all just keep on exploring exploring and learning together.
1: Thanks so much for listening, everyone.